scripture. Um, again, we're going to be in Luke 22, verses 24 through 30. So uh, when you get there, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's word, if you're able? A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as, as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? It is not the one who reclines at table, but I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel." This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning. I want to welcome you here. My name is Court. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. And I just want to say thanks so much for making us a part of your week, especially if it's your first time. We want to welcome you. And uh, hopefully someone has grabbed you and shared with you a little bit about who we are and what we're trying to do here as a church. Uh, and we'd love it if you would get connected. There should be a connect card and then one of the seat backs in front of you. Uh, just kind of let us know who you are and, and uh, that you're here. Uh, like Lauren said, we're closing out a mini-series on the church this week. Um, and just to give a quick recap, we kind of have been walking through uh, what the church is and, and why uh, the church is necessary, what the Bible says about the church. Um, talked a little bit about membership. Uh, the very first week, we kind of cast a vision for where the church sits in biblical history from the, the meta-narrative of Scripture, from the beginning all the way to, to where we stand. Like, what is the church, this, this household, this family of sinners that have been bought by the grace of God to covenant together? And we talked about the, the universal church, so big C church, that everyone who's ever believed on the name of Jesus, and then the local expression of the church, the little C church, which is where we're at right now, not just a place, but a people primarily. Um, and, and then we talked about church membership and, you know, what are church members, um, first of all, that is it biblical and kind of came to the conclusion that, yeah, and then what does it mean to be a church member? Why would that be necessary? And so this morning, what I want to do is uh, wrap it up by talking about church leadership and what is church leadership? Why is it necessary? Um, how is it supposed to function and why that even matters? And so uh, before we hop in, uh, I would love it if you would bow your heads with me, and I just want to pray and ask the Lord to, to help us and to find truth, uh, not just in his word, <clears throat> but that the Lord would embed that truth in our hearts. So if you'll bow your heads, let's pray. Father, we're, we're so grateful that you have sent your son. Jesus, thank you that you are the good shepherd and that we don't have to want or live in want. Thank you, Jesus, that you have promised that you will build your church and that the gates of hell won't prevail against it. Thank you, Jesus, that we don't have to rely on our, our best gifts among us here today. Although you've gifted all of us, God, you yourself stand and preside over your church. And Jesus, thank you that you've modeled for us perfect leadership. Thank you that you've modeled for us what it looks like to be a humble servant, to be a, a confident man and a loving man, and a gentle man, and a kind man. Thank you, Jesus, that you still stand and you preside and rule over your church even now as you are seated at the right hand of the Father. And so it is our prayer this morning, Lord, that we would submit to you, uh, 
both in word and in deed. Let our hearts bow this morning before your word, and would you unite us together as your people, all under the banner of your leadership. And then lastly, Lord, for, for each and every one of us, would we find um, application and what we ought to do in relation to leadership. For some of us, God, would you begin to stir in our hearts an aspiration to lead. For others, Lord, that already do lead, would you give them conviction in their hearts to lead as you would have them, as servants and not as the Gentiles do lording over. But for all of us, Lord, we look to submit ourselves under your authority and under your rule because you are a kind and gentle king. And we love you, Lord, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so to kick off, we're going to come back to Luke chapter number 22 right towards the end. But uh, to begin, I want to start with point number one. Uh, what are, why are leaders necessary in the church? Like I think one of the questions might be, um, why can't we just be members and just kind of figure it out on our own? Isn't it, doesn't it always kind of go bad whenever you have leaders and that how everything gets corrupt? And I want to start with point number one. Leaders are called to protect and provide for the church at God's direction. Leaders are called to protect and provide for the church at God's direction. So I want to say that I think intrinsically we know that leadership is necessary because even in the world that we live in, uh, the secular world that we live in, leadership is necessary in order to keep things in order. So it's why we have judges, it's why we have uh, juries that are given certain levels of authority, police officers are super necessary, uh, we even have teachers who have been given authority, governors, mayors, etc. I can kind of go on and on. In our society, we recognize that we need to have people that are in authority, that have been given that authority so they can exercise it for the good of the whole, right? And we kind of live in that realm that we know that it would just, anarchy never works and if we didn't have anyone in authority that typically things would go out of order. Uh, Mark Dever, who's a pastor in Washington, D.C., he says this about the idea of leadership and authority. He says, the fallen world both misuses authority and lies about authority that is well used. Satan's basic lie to Adam and Eve was that God couldn't really love them and tell them no. You guys ever heard that? If you have kids, you have, right? You don't love me if you say no to me, right? That's Satan's basic lie here to Adam and Eve. Good authority blesses those under its leadership. People will gravitate toward healthy authority that spends itself for the good of those under its care rather than using them for its own good. Look at how a family prospers under good parents or a team under a good coach. So Mark Dever's making the point that even from the very beginning, that ultimately the, the lie that's kind of sown in the garden is that Satan's telling Eve and Adam that God can't simultaneously say, no, this is not good for you and love you. And he's kind of trying to frame freedom under this idea that freedom never has any constraints. But we know, especially if you've ever tried to Maybe even, you don't have to be a parent in the room to get this. If you ever try to coach a Little League baseball team or a Little League basketball team, you know that there has to be constraints in order for this thing to work, right? Or it goes off the rails. But the lie is that you can't simultaneously say no and love because that's not freedom. And that's actually really harmful and untrue. Listen to this. This is a text from David, the king of Israel, when he talks about leadership. At, towards the end of his life, he says this. In 2 Samuel chapter 23, verses 3 through 4, he says, the God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. So what's David saying here? David is saying, and he's a man who has seen unhealthy authority, right? Like he lived under the reign of King Saul. He actually got the brunt end of some unhealthy authority under King Saul. 
And he's saying that ultimately God had spoken to him that when leadership is done well, that it's a blessing to everyone underneath that leadership. That's God's ultimate vision. Another way to say that might be all earthly authority is meant to reflect God's heavenly authority. And therefore, every leadership position exists to create an environment for the flourishing in others, even if that means it's a great cost to the leader themselves. Does this make sense? That leaders really are called to be sacrificial, care, careful um, leaders of a, of a flock of people and doing what's good for them. So the shortest, answers to, the shortest answer maybe to saying, why do we need leaders? I think it's important to say, it's not because we're all sinful and we need people uh, to call us out on our junk or set judicial parameters around our selfishness, although that is true. I don't think that's the primary reason we need leadership because leadership was actually set into motion before Genesis 3 in the fall, right? So if, if God was only using leadership as a response to brokenness, he would have started that after Genesis 3. But actually, you find leadership from the very beginning, God himself being in authority and then giving Adam and Eve authority and be, them being vice regents over all of creation. God sets this in because... It's in the very created order. We were made to lead others and to be led by God and others. And I would say that the church is the place that should serve as a model for good, servant-like leadership as members take leadership seriously, both submitting to leadership and taking the mantle of leadership themselves from time to time as God would have them. Mark Dever goes on to say this, power apart from God's purposes is always demonic. Power, apart from God's purposes, is always demonic. So if you're saying that you've, or you've experienced bad leadership, whether it be spiritual leadership or whether it be leadership in the world, if you're saying, man, it's, it's really bad, I've never seen someone really actually exercise leadership that hasn't gotten on a power trip. You guys ever experienced that person? Or maybe they get like a little bit of power and then you start recognizing that that power has gone to their head pretty quickly, you know? We've all experienced that. It's like you get like the team captain for like, I don't know, a fantasy football team, and they take it way too seriously before you know it, you're kicked out of the league. Like, what happened? You know, they're they're imposing fines on you, you know, in your like friendly family league. Uh, we've all experienced this, right? And, th- and those are small, like trite examples, but you could kind of extend out. And, and when you start extending out into very real life scenarios, people are actually hurt by bad leadership. And Mark Dever says, rather than us saying, because we've seen the effects of the negatives, we should throw it all out, he says, we should acknowledge that any leadership, any leadership that's not done underneath the guise of God's purposes will always be demonic. It'll always ultimately be led by the enemy and therefore will always end up, end up being twisted. I will say on the opposite side of that though, that power according to God's purposes can be true leadership. And that's what leaders of the church should seek to wield. So a couple things. In the first definition, I said that leaders in the church are called to protect and provide. I want to start by saying, and I'm going to circle back around to this at the very end. Ultimately, since Jesus is the head of the church, Jesus is the ultimate protector and provider. And church leaders can't do that without him and should never seek to do so without him. Ultimately, every leader that's in the church is called to be an under-shepherd of the good shepherd, right? So they shepherd with little s, Jesus shepherds with big s, they pastor with little p, Jesus pastors with big p, right? I can go on and on and on, right? All leaders ultimately submit to Jesus. So when I say this, I hope you don't hear that they're trying to be messianic. In fact, when leaders try to be messianic, it always goes poorly for them because they try to take into their own hands what was never meant for them. Things like omniscience, I can be everywhere for everyone. Omnipotence, I can answer everybody's issues with my great strength, right? Or omniscience, which is I know all the answers to all the Bible questions. These are, this is really tempting for people who are more like 
on the end of theological. It's that I need to answer every theological question that everybody has in the church, and that's my role as a leader. And I would say that's actually really unhealthy because you're not God, and therefore you don't know all the answers. And when you try to extend yourself to answer all of those questions, what you end up doing is creating more division than you do unity versus sitting with people and acknowledging, hey, there are certain things that happen in life that I don't have the answers to, and I don't think you're gonna find someone that's on the earth now physically with flesh and blood you know, running through their veins that's gonna be able to answer it for you. So why don't we sit and look to God who knows all things, right? So if you find leaders that are looking to be messianic, they're looking to be Jesus, that's unhealthy. But I think every leader is called to be like Jesus and to pursue Jesus' likeness. So let's talk about these two words, protection and provision. First, protection. Leaders seek to protect the members of God's family from Satan, sinful temptation, and lies of the world. I just, I named three that I think are primary. There's others. But Satan, sinful temptation, and from lies of the world. In the book of Acts chapter 20, Paul talks to the Ephesian elders. It's his last time to sit down with these these men who have called to be leaders over the church at Ephesus. And he says, there will be fierce wolves that are gonna try to come in among you and they're gonna try to harm the flock. He says, so be on guard. Now you need to know, what does be on guard mean? This is, this is not like Old Testament where you know, Nehemiah is on the wall guarding and legitimately gonna shoot people with arrows. Like you're never gonna find our elders out with the police officers with a gun, you know, just waiting to see like, where's the wolf at, you know? Uh, we won't be doing that. Uh, so what does it mean to be on guard? Well, it means to be spiritually alert enough to recognize when wolves will enter into the flock, not for the good of the flock, but actually to harm the sheep. This can happen through false teaching. It can happen through predatory behavior, which has happened in the life of even our church and churches forever. You look for people that are actually uh, interacting with predatory behavior. They have no real purpose to be a part of the flock except for to harm people, not trying to really get involved, not trying to engage uh, relationally, and whatever kind of relation, uh, relationships they're trying to build is really selfish for their own gain. And so it says that the leaders are supposed to be looking out for that, making sure that those, those kind of people are called out and that the sheep are protected from those who have no intention of actually being the sheep. Number two, that the church leaders are called to help protect people from sinful temptation. Now, again, our elders don't just, you know, hide out in your closet, you know, like leaders don't just come into your house. Like I know what you struggle with, so now I'm gonna be there, you know, to step in and don't do it, you know, I'm gonna try to show up to your job or whatever it may be. That's not how we operate. However, it's working with our other uh, leaders like home group leaders to figure out ways that we can pray for the flock. We can have coffee, sit down and talk, discuss, hey, these are, these are potential pitfalls and roads that you could take that are actually gonna lead you astray, which leads to the last one of protection, which is um, from the lies of the world. And listen, I'm not the guy that tells you to hide away from the big bad world. I'm saying that there, is constant, there are constantly sermons that are being preached, not just from this pulpit, but from all across our nation and world. People are basically preaching sermons of truth. And so it's important that church leaders say, let's call balls and strikes on things that are coming from the world that are actually redeemable versus things that just need to be rejected altogether because they may sound good, but in the end, it leads to destruction. Proverbs says, there's a way that seems right to man and in the end leads to destruction. That would mean that common wisdom that we get on Facebook probably shouldn't just be taken at face value without some really deep consideration, particularly spiritually. That's what we try to do as elders. That's including with sermon series when we start praying through what should we do with sermon series. We start thinking, well, how do we respond to what are, you know, the waves of our culture, what sermons are being preached so that we can have an undercurrent of this is the truth of God's word up and against that. Okay, number two, not just protection, but provision. So leaders in the church seek to provide spiritual direction to Christians. This would be like helping them to become obedient to God's call. 
spiritual care for Christians and members. This would be like ministering to the needs of the heart and even the body at times. We have things like benevolence funds in the church where real things happen to people that physically affects them or physically affects their family, and we look to try to come in and help. Um, And this is done by the Spirit's power and leading through prayer and with the truth of God, which ultimately the truth of God, our ultimate resource is the Word of God, right? Like we don't try to do this by any other standard or by our own standard that we make up, but we do this by the Word. And listen, some of the things that I just mentioned, if you just start thinking of church leadership, there's, a, there's another model that you probably follow or have, been, or have experienced, whether good or bad, that can kind of help you with this, which would be like parenting. So most of you, if you're parents here, you would see that you probably do the two things that I just mentioned. You probably want to protect your kids from danger, and you probably want to provide your kids with things like nourishment, counsel, discipline, guidance, coaching, most of all, truth, right? These are the things that you feel like you're responsible for doing. Church leaders similarly try to take that, that same vein and carry forward with those two major buckets. An example would be, as I was preparing for my sermon yesterday, my wife was off with the worship team. They were doing like a songwriting retreat, so it was me and Jonas kind of bacheloring at the house. I wasn't feeling all that well, but he wanted to ride his bike, so I get him all, you know, geared up. A couple things I want to do right off the bat with Jonas is he's super allergic to mosquitoes and bugs, like, in an unnatural way. Like, I don't know if you've ever seen, like, uh, the Goonies, right? That's what Jonas will turn out being if he gets bit. I appreciate some of you got that reference, okay? Yeah, baby Ruth guy, that's Jonas if he gets bit too many times on his face. So one of the first things I want to do for him is get him clothed and then spray the off, you know, cutter all over him, whatever. And he hates it. He's like, dad, it hurts. Don't do that or whatever. But I'm like, listen, son, first of all, it doesn't hurt. That's being a, you know, a little bit of a baby. But second of all, I have to do this. So I spray him on his arms, spray him on his legs, and then I send him out into our backyard. And I have like little rules that probably seem arbitrary to Jonas, but they're definitely for his safety, right? I don't want him to run across a snake. I don't want him to go into places where I know there's probably insects like spiders where he could probably get bit particularly. And I'm not going to be able to protect everything. We want to protect from the big bad stuff, right? Well, I looked out yesterday as I was preparing, and I see him, and he's got one of our cats, and he's crawling up his playground ladder with the cat. And I'm like, this is not, I watched for a while, right? And he's getting ready. You know, he's going to just toss the cat, like, right off the playground. So I run out, right? So we had that discipline moment. Okay, then send him back out there after his discipline moment. And I'm like, okay, go ahead and go play, son. Remember, I don't want you to go over here behind our little building that we have in the back. He's like, okay. He starts riding around. Next thing I know, he's, he's pulling something else. I'm thinking, he's got one of those cats again on the playground. No, he's pulling his bike. So he's got his bike on top of the playground. I think what he wants to do is try to ride it down the slide. So I run out, like, son, no, that's not good. And he's looking at me like, well, this is legit. Why wouldn't I do this, right? So I'm, I'm trying to figure it out. And I'm like, son, give me your bike. And I'm pulling down, trying to explain to him why this isn't. And then I start hearing like a little beeping. And I'm like, do our neighbors like have a... Kind of like the, you know, the show 24, like, I'm like, man, I have like Jack Bowers, one of my neighbors, or I'm looking around, and I go back, and over underneath the little covering that we have is uh, this really old golf cart that we own, and I went back, and I keep hearing this beeping, I'm like, it seems like it's coming from the golf cart. I lifted the seat up where all the batteries are in there, and my son had, had flipped a switch in, inside the golf cart, and it was beeping. And I look over at him, and I'm like, did you... It's obvious that he did, by the way. Okay, this is a rhetorical. I know the answer. Did you flip this switch? He goes, no. And then I look at him like, don't lie to me. Did you flip the switch? Yes. So then I do the whole discipline mode, right? And, and listen, I, I have like these certain rules with Jonas because I didn't want him to get electrocuted or do something silly under there, right? So we do the, the whole discipline. And 
here's the thing. All of the rules that may seem arbitrary to him really have one major goal, which is human flourishing, right? I want him to live, to not just live a safe and non-dangerous life, but to live a good life. And I want to do everything that I can to set those parameters for his good. And this means that members of the church, that four members of the church, leaders exist to spend their efforts looking out for you. They'll ask you things like, for, about your well-being, how are you, your presence, where were you, your needs, what can I do for you, maybe even your actions, why did you do that? And they all have the exact same tenor and hopefully tone. This is imperfect, but the goal always is the same. It's human flourishing. That's the goal. That's the aim. Mark Dever ends his little talk by, or his little segment by saying this, Satan's lie, which is that authority can never be trusted because it's always tyrannical and oppressive, will be subverted by the elder's benevolent exercise of authority. I love that. That's his vision for eldership, is that one of the ways that we can subvert Satan's lies, trying diligently as leaders in the church to have a benevolent exercise of authority like Jesus, so that it's not just basically confirming everybody's worst fears. And that's a vision that we have as elders here at Providence. Okay, so point number two, who are elders in the church? Well, I've meant, or who are leaders in the church? I've mentioned elders, but there's uh, really two offices. So leaders are elders and deacons in the New Testament. Leaders are elders and deacons in the New Testament. I wanna read quickly 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses one through 15. These are the qualifications that are given to us in scripture for elders and deacons. So if you have your Bible, you can turn there or you can just look on the screen behind me. Paul says this when he writes to Timothy as he is leading in Ephesus. This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, that word overseer is also uh, elder in your New Testament. It's, uh, sometimes you'll see it as pastor. Sometimes you'll see it as bishop. These are all interchangeable use of words. So the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Here, there's another uh, mirror of household and household. He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Deacons, here's the second office, likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them be tested first. Let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Then he says, I hope to come to you soon. I'm writing you these things. If I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of truth. So there are two offices of leadership given in the New Testament that are given to the church, elders and deacons. And you might notice here that these are Christians who have been identified as people of Christian character or good Christian character. And the major difference seen in these two offices is hinted at uh, by the only distinction that we see between elder and deacon. 
and that's the ability to teach in 1 Timothy. It's the only one that's in elders that's not in deacons, and they pretty much look exactly the same. Now, without getting too deep here, I want to mention why I think that is. I don't think that it's eradicating the idea that deacons could ever teach, but I do think instead it's highlighting the primary role of elder in the Bible, which is oversight, headship, and authority. Paul articulates teaching, I use that in quotes, in 1 Timothy, and he always uses that as an example of an exercise of authority. And so elders are called to exercise Christ-like spiritual authority in the church for the good of all of God's people and for God's glory. And elders do that primarily in three different ways in the church. First, they, they teach the Bible, right? So every week we try to get up, teach the Bible, and focus on teaching from the Bible, not from our own best wisdom. This also shows how you submit to Jesus and not to, uh, particularly to a group of uh, leaders or men, because ultimately authority is God's and God's alone. They also govern with decision-making. They shepherd with pastoral care. Uh, in an imperfect way, you might look at the Old Testament model with you have prophets, priests, and kings, right? So you have prophets who are, are preaching the word consistently, and uh, they're, they're foretellers and foretellers of God's word. You have kings who are kind of setting policies, setting and making sure that the, the nation itself of Israel is good and everything's healthy and good. They protect boundaries, all of those things. Then you have priests who are you know, constantly mediating on behalf of God for the people. They're in the, they're in the trenches with the people. Those are imperfect examples, but ultimately you might see those are what elders look to do. Now, also remember, like we said earlier, Jesus is the only one who fulfilled all three offices. Jesus was perfect prophet, perfect priest, perfect king. No man does that. And so I wanted to put here as an important note, nowhere in the New Testament do you see one person being told to do all those things. Nowhere in the New Testament. There is no CEO in the Bible for the church, ever. You never see that. Like Paul doesn't say, hey, we need to have members, and we need to have deacons, and we need to have elders, and then what we need is the man of God. You don't ever see that. Paul never shows up to the church and says, hey, don't worry, guys, I'm the man of God, finally I'm here and now I can fix all of your problems. He never does that. In fact, what he talks about is a plurality, a shared version of leadership, which is why it's always to the elders, to the elders, to the elders, plural at these churches. Now, who are deacons? Deacons are introduced in your Bible in Acts chapter number six, and ultimately they're introduced as the church grew, and inevitably there were more needs than there were leaders in the church. Can we agree that was obviously going to happen? More needs in the church than there are leaders to meet the needs. That's the first time that you find deacons. In the book of Acts chapter number six, there's a group of Hellenist widows who are complaining to the elders saying, we're, we're trying to get cared for, we're trying to get benevolence for our food, and things aren't working out well. And so they're complaining to the elders, and the elders are recognizing, hey, yeah, they're whining, but yeah, they're right. Like, they, they genuinely, the system's all messed up. And so what do they do? The elders get together and say, let's find people who are full of spirit, who are full of character, who can address this issue and really care for the widow as well, so that, this is the key, so that we can focus on the ministry of the word and prayer. It's my biblical conviction that deacons are godly men and women who have character and are willing to serve the body's various needs to preserve the unity of the church and the elders, so that the elders can focus on the word of God and prayer, so that ultimately the progress of the gospel is the top priority of the church. That's what the elders wanted. They wanted to keep the progress of the gospel, the advancement of the gospel in the kingdom as top priority without ignoring and neglecting the very real needs of the body itself. That's where you find deacons coming in. I use the word unity because, listen to me with this, the first deacons preserved church unity from the earliest church being overthrown and having a split. That's really what they did. They had their first church argument, and thank God for the deacons, because if it weren't for the deacons, they probably would have had, you know, two denominations right off the bat, right? The ones who cared about the widows and those who didn't. Maybe. I don't know. I made that up. But nonetheless, it probably, it's, there would have been division in the church. 
They would have figured out, like, no, nobody cares. You know, Peter, he's a great preacher, but he doesn't really care about the widows. Or I love, I love Peter's preaching, but I really love, uh, I love Matthew because he's always there at the, in the widow line, right? And that's how the enemy always looks to work. Well, the deacons preserve the church unity by saying, no, 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 all the elders love you, care about the widow situation. We're here. We've been given the authority to care for this situation. One example used in a book called Doctrine is that uh, elders and deacons are like right and left hands of the body, serving and working together for the glory of God and the unity of the church. And yes, elders have the primary seat of authority, but elders don't use authority as a bludgeon, but like Jesus always used authority. At Providence, we have elders, so we have uh, an elder board. You can look on our website, probably see them running around. Uh, And they're faithful men who serve together to care for the flock. And we also have deacons who we're going to officially install in January at our members meeting, but they've already been serving for a really long time. We have what we call home group leaders, and those are care deacons in our church. Those are people who have been given authority and responsibility to care for members of the flock. They lead uh, regular get-togethers in their homes. They eat together. They pray together. They read the scripture together. They do service projects together. These are leaders in the church who have made it their mission to care, care for people and preserve the unity of the church by meeting needs. We also have support staff members, department leaders. These are people who do things behind the scenes in order to care for the people of the church. And you may not even know that they exist, but sometimes the most important leaders in any situation are the ones that you rarely ever see, that you rarely ever even know, and thank God for them. So at Providence, we have both. Now, point number three, how are leaders supposed to lead? How are leaders called to lead in the church? Now let's go back to Luke chapter number 22, and I wanna spend the rest of our time in these six verses because I think this is primary and most important when we talk about church leadership, and I hope that it'll lead us to some practical application now that we've gotten through some some of the other stuff. Luke chapter 22, verses 24 through 30, and I'll just read it again. Just to give you the scene, this is after the pass. This is, the Passover's on its way, right? So you have a, the institution of the Last Supper just happened. And if you guys remember, there's this, there's this scene in the Last Supper where they're taking of the Passover and Jesus says, this is my body, it's broken for you. Uh, every time you do this, do this in remembrance of me. This is my blood that was shed for you. And then Jesus like rises from the table. It says he takes off his outer garment, he takes a towel, he wraps it around his waist and he washes his disciples' feet. He washed each and every one of their feet. And Peter has a real problem with this because this was him taking the, the, the form of a servant at the table, and Jesus was the honored rabbi at the table. And, and as these disciples had followed Jesus, they hated the idea that Jesus would humble himself in this way. It was so uh, grotesque in their eyes. Why would Jesus do this? And so Jesus washed all their feet um, after the Passover and after the Last Supper, after telling them, I'm gonna give my life for you, right? Now I want to, to show you human nature here in verse 24. The very next conversation that arises in their inductive Bible study is what? Verse 24, a dispute also arose among them as to which one of them was to be regarded as the greatest. Have you ever hung out with a group of guys? This is pretty typical, actually. It's like, I'm a guy, so I can make fun of us. This is pretty typical. It's like we learn a lesson, and then right after that, we go against the lesson that we just learned. It's like, you need to humble yourselves. Yes, you know what? I'm sorry I should have done that. Next thing. But which one of us is really better than the other? Can we talk about that real quick? Can we take a vote, straw poll? That's what they want to know. Now, if you go into the commentaries, this conversation is not just random. Um, it probably arose around the seating, the seating at the Last Supper. You have Jesus. Uh, remember, the, the story says that, that John lays his head on the chest of Christ, and they're trying to figure out who's going to be the one to betray. Uh, some commentators say that Peter was, was not sitting as close to Jesus as he would have wanted to sit, 
And so he's looking probably at John as John is sitting next to Christ and he's asking John to get more information as to what's happening with, with the person who's gonna betray, which is why John's leaning in to hear from Christ as to who Judas would be before they knew that it was gonna be Judas. So probably within the inner circle, remember there's the, there's the 12 and then there's Peter, James, and John, right? And Peter, James, and John are always asked to go with Jesus into these really, like the transfiguration, it happened with just those three. The Garden of Gethsemane, they went a little further, it just happens with those three. There's probably an argument between Peter, James, and John because James and John, at this time, they come to Christ and say, I want to sit at, actually their mom, this is terrible, comes up to Jesus and says, can my son sit at your right and left hand in the kingdom, right? And Peter's probably sitting at the end of the table like, what the heck? He's, first of all, these guys are total squirrels. Second of all, I'm the one that he said was going to be, you know, on this rock I will build my church. He named me Rock, you know? His name was Cephas, now it's Peter, you know, your name is Rock. Like, he's thinking, I'm the one who's supposed to sit at his right hand, right? So there's this argument that's probably, in context, not all that uncommon, and you'd probably find yourself being involved in. Who's greater among us? Who's supposed to sit at the right seat? Or maybe to think of it like this, if Jesus is saying, we're, we're going to continue to rehearse this kind of dinner regularly, what's the seating arrangements at dinner for honor? Listen to what Jesus says. He said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as the one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at the table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. So Jesus juxtaposes worldly leadership over and against leadership in his kingdom. He says, the, the leaders of the Gentiles, this, you could put names to this, men like Herod or Pilate or Caesar, they exercised lordship over the people. They harmed the people. They didn't care for the people. And then they called themselves philanthropists for it. They would say, I'm going to abuse you. You will listen to me and you should worship me for it because I'm just doing it for your good. They enslaved people, they used people, they treated them as beneath them, and in many ways they built their empire by abusing people and then asking for the praise from those that they abused. And Jesus says his disciples should be those who do the exact opposite, who serve at the table. So in the ancient world, there would have been those who stooped to serve at the table because they didn't necessarily sit on chairs. They probably served lower to the ground, so they had to even get lower to serve at mealtime. And where you sat was the pecking order, and Jesus says that we should be the ones who serve and sit at the very last seat. Jesus says his leaders, the great ones, will be the chief servants, and then he says, I'm the one among you who serves, or in other words, you should be the foot washers as leaders. Good leadership always looks like Jesus, and because of that, good leadership always has to be sacrificial. It's always a dying to self to truly lead in the church. At Providence, I can't, I decided to leave out names for the sake of, you know, Jesus' encouragement in Sermon on the Mount, but I was thinking through leaders in our church in ways that they model this. Because I want to say, I do believe that there are so many leaders in our church that model this so well. Um, men and women who do things like, that have leadership positions, and you wouldn't imagine that they would do this, but they do things like uh, vacuum when no one else is here, take out the trash, giving money to families in need. There have been cars that have been given away in our church that people didn't even know about, just full-on vehicles. Uh, 
late nights in hospital waiting rooms, living rooms, leaders crying out to God for wayward kids, countless hours uh, to print, prepare, plan for children's ministry curriculum so that our kids could be ministered to safely and regularly with the gospel. Um, Just so many things. Tears have been cried. Sweat's been poured out for the good of the people in the church. And ultimately, that is what it looks like to be Christ-like as a leader. In no way do I believe that we've been perfect, but leaders in our church have sought to model Jesus imperfectly. And that's what Jesus is asking for here. Now, you know that Jesus is not advocating for no authority because watch how he ends this. He says in verse 28, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials and I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on the thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Those who are servant leaders, Jesus is saying in the end that we're gonna see the disciples judging all the 12 tribes of Israel on, on thrones as elders. Jesus is also saying that no one gets to sit on thrones like that in his kingdom that haven't first knelt down and served like he served. That's the way, that's the path, truly from the heart, servanthood and dying to self. So what's the application this morning? I wanna give you a few thoughts and then pray for us. The quick one is uh, trying not to be quick to judge leaders, but instead my prayer is that every Christian would aspire to being a leader. Now you might say, not everybody's supposed to be a leader court, and here's what I'll say. Because by aspire to leadership, I'm not saying that every Christian should aspire to prestige, prominence, because that's not what a Christian leader is. But that we should all aspire to leadership because to aspire to leadership is to aspire to Christ-like service to others. And that's what it means to be like Jesus. Listen to what Paul says about what he thought ministry of apostleship was. It's weird if we just turn on the TV and we look at what people are called apostles now, they look almost little to nothing like what Paul thought apostles looked like in the New Testament. This is 1 Corinthians chapter four. Listen to what he says about what it means to be an apostle. He says, I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed. We're buffeted and homeless. We labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. (laughs) What if we put that on a leadership application? I think that'd be more accurate. He's like, do you want to be praised? That's not the, do you want to be called the scum of the earth, the refuse of all things, right? Here's what he says. I don't write these things to you to make you ashamed. I want to admonish you as my beloved children. This is the heart of Paul for leadership. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you don't have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And so then I urge you to be imitators of me. Paul truly believed that he could tell people to imitate him because he strove to imitate Jesus. And that's what Christian leadership is like. It's my longing that our church would be full of more and more members who long to be leaders for the sake of those around them. And so my encouragement, practical application is a few things. One, pray for leaders. Two, encourage leaders. And three, pursue and perhaps aspire to lead yourself. Many of you have been gifted by God for that reason. And dying to self is what it looks like to be a leader. In conclusion, we say at Providence that Jesus is our senior pastor. Why do we say that? Is that just coy? (laughs) 
Like we say that a lot in our members' meetings, and we'll talk about that. You know, we have a plurality of pastors. I always say I'm one of the pastors, and that is particularly designed. I know I have a primary role in teaching, but I'm one of the pastors. If there's anyone who has a singular role at Providence, it is Jesus who's our senior pastor. Why do we say that, though? I want to end with this quote from, of course, you guys knew I was going to at least throw one at you, from Spurgeon, uh, because no one says it better than him. Uh, And he says this about Jesus being the chief shepherd. He said, our Lord Jesus is very frequently described as the shepherd of his people. The figure is inexhaustible, but it's been so often handled that I suppose it'd be difficult to say anything fresh upon it. We all know and we're very glad and comforted in the knowledge that the Lord Jesus Christ as our shepherd exercises towards us all the kind and necessary offices which a shepherd performs toward his sheep. With a gentle sway, he rules us for our good. Let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. He guides us. And when he putteth forth his own sheep, he goeth before them and the sheep follow him and they know his voice. He provides for us. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside still waters. He protects us from all forms of evil and therefore Though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will fear no evil, for he is with us. His rod and his staff, they comfort us. If we wander, Jesus seeks us out and brings us back. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. If we be broken, he binds us up. If we be wounded, he heals us according to his word. I will bind up that which was broken and will strengthen that which was sick. The sheep is an animal of many diseases and many wants. And so the Christian is an individual of many sins and many infirmities. But as the shepherd endeavors to meet all the wants of his flock, so our Lord Jesus supports all of the blood-bought company and all their needs. If you'll stand to your feet, I'll pray for us. Thank you, Jesus, that you're the good shepherd. We humble ourselves before you. We're so grateful that we can look to you And now, my God, for those that are under the sound of my voice that may have never felt or experienced the loving arms of you as shepherd and Lord, would you draw those to yourself that may have not put faith in you ever before? Would you show them that you are a matchless Savior, willing and able to do what we could never do? And secondarily, Lord, for those of us who love you and know you and have covenanted together to be the church, my God, would you now... Not only help us to submit to your leadership, but to aspire to servant-like leadership under your care. Help us to lead like you lead, Jesus, and forgive us where we've fallen short. Help us to be a model to the world of what it looks like to exercise authority, not lordship, but service. Jesus, now as we take of the table, would you remind us what it looks like to die for the sake of your people, and would you help us to figuratively do that day by day by day. For your glory, God, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.